we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this week we're on chapter 10. We're going to read verses 15 to 22. For those of you that haven't been with us, 1 Corinthians is a book that deals with many, many problems in the church. But two problems are constant. One is the snobbery of the Corinthians. And it was a particular kind of snobbery that's very similar to ours here in this town. It was a snobbery of the mind. They were very, very sure that they were bright ones. National merit scholars. You know, lily scholars. And that their brains were superior to other people. And so they always talked about their wisdom and their knowledge. And that was in the church, dividing the church. And the division was over the issue of whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed in pagan idolatrous ceremonies. So the pagans in Corinth sacrificed meat to their idols. The Corinthians, some of them believed it was okay to go ahead and buy that meat at a meat market and serve it and eat it, because after all, idols are nothing. And others of them said, no, you can't eat that meat because it's been sacrificed to idols. And the Apostle Paul is right in the middle of chapters of dealing with that issue. And you'll see some of the hints of the larger conflicts in the church as we read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 15 to 22. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Now, I hope you love the Bible. And one of the reasons you should love it is it diagnoses your heart perfectly. You go to a doctor or a mechanic and they can get it real wrong. But I feel this way, it's in your head. But the car makes this noise. Well, I don't hear the noise. You know, I took my car into Stevens and I said, I need a new CV joint on my front right of my Accord. And it was the middle of the summer. And they took it out and brought it back and they said, you don't need a new CV joint. I said, yes, I do. And they said, no, you don't. We drove it hard and turned hard to the, to the, to the left. You turn to the left and it places pressure on the right CV joint. I got gotcha. you. I said, you're kidding me. So I got in the car with a mechanic and drove hard to the left. Absolutely no knocking. Why? Well, <laughs> because it was hot. And so they made me wait. Now, I still don't have a new CV joint. They weren't going to replace a joint. They couldn't hear knocking, you know. I'm telling you, I'm telling you it needs it. All right. And so when you come to Scripture... Scripture is absolutely perfect in its diagnosis. 
It's so perfect that where there's no knocking, no pain, no conscience, it awakens one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, it never ever is stupid or flattering. It just perfectly gets our number. And it's amazing because it's men that write it. All right, the Holy Spirit didn't grab the hand and move the hand. You know, it's what's called the dictation theory of inspiration. It's not that. It's that God worked through men in such a way that nothing they wrote came from the mind of man, but holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at how the Holy Spirit deals with, uh, with the Corinthians at the very beginning. Um, he says this. He, sp- he says what? He says, I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Now, can I give it a little inflection that helps us to understand what's going on here? I speak to wise men. Judge what I say. In other words, here are the Corinthians. They have idols of brains all over the city. And they're so proud of their brains. They're brainy ones, like Chris. We all agree Chris is a brainy one. Everybody agrees. I hate to tell you, but it's true. But Chris is not humble the way this man is who has been born again by the Spirit of God. But the Corinthians are just filled with their brains. So the Apostle Paul is working hard to bring them along with the things that will make for salvation. And so he stops and he says, I speak as to wise men. And of course, they are wise men. They're men that are absolutely filled with their own wisdom and their own knowledge. They're filled with themselves. And so the Apostle Paul strokes them. He flatters them. But of course, you know that if somebody says to you, I speak as to wise men, I speak as to runners, are you not running the race? You you see what I'm saying? It's a way a Jewish mother uses to bring her child along with a little bit of a guilt trip. You know, I, I got your number, your wise ones. Now, you tell me whether or not I'm right. And what you see there is that the Apostle Paul is stopping as he disciplines them spiritually. And he's trading on his intimacy with them. Do you see that? I speak as to wise ones. Judge whether what I say is true. Now, what's the second half? Well, the second half is his way of saying to them, since you're so wise, uh, without a doubt, you'll agree with me when I say... And they're predisposed to agree with him because, after all, he's acknowledged how wise they are. And this kind of thing, we have a tendency to just pass right over in Scripture. You know, we think, what does that have to do with anything? You know, do I really have to read the intimate give and take between the Apostle Paul and the sheep? Well, yes, you do. And the reason is your expectation of those men and women in your life who lead you spiritually should be that they're at least as intimate with you as the Corinthians were with the Apostle Paul. It shouldn't set off warning buzzers in your brain when you actually know the man who's preaching to you or the man who's admonishing you. It should be like, oh, I recognize this. I read the Apostle Paul saying, Since you're so wise, undoubtedly you'll agree with me as I say. 
and you think to yourself, okay, he's got my number, so I'll let him admonish me. Okay, so the first thing to learn from the text of Scripture today is that godly men and women in the church will know you, they'll know your sins, and they'll use those very sins as ways of calling you to repentance and to holiness. Are you with me? They'll know what your predilections are. They'll know where you're a snob. They'll know what music you like. They'll quote your bands. Are you with me? All right. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Okay, now here it comes. Here's what he says. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now he's setting something up, right? If you're playing chess, you don't ever think that the point of the next move, and I'm looking at Chris because he loves chess, you don't ever think that the point of the next move is the next move. You're a fool if you do. The Apostle Paul's playing a chess game here. And his next move is actually connected with many words in the future. And so we watch him build his case. And here's the first step of the case that we're currently in. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Now there's, listen, this is my 49th sermon on the book of 1 Corinthians. And I guarantee you that we could study that verse for many weeks before we moved on to the next one. Scripture's packed full. You know, they've got, uh, the, the Arnold Bakery has that bread called like seven, seven grain or something, you, you, you know? Well, this is like a 57 million grain verse, all right? It's packed full of helpful things. Now, what is helpful? Well, number one, the cup of blessing. Do any of you have Episcopalian friends? Okay, some of you have Episcopalian friends. What do Episcopalian rich people, excuse me, what do they call this? They call it the Eucharist, right? What do Plymouth Brethren call this? They call it, anybody remember Jonathan Wegner? He always called it the breaking of bread. What do Trendy Acts 29 people call it? They call it koinonia. They call their churches koinonia. What do we call it? We call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion. What's the connection between all of those names? Well, the connection is verse 16. Because when verse 16 says, is not the cup of blessing, it uses the word there that we get the word eulogy from. All right, what is eulogy? Well, what's euthanasia? Euthanasia is good death from the Greek. Thanatos and you, all right? Euthanasia. Eulogy is what happens at a funeral where you speak well of someone. All right? And so is not the cup of speaking well of someone, the cup of blessing, all right, which we bless, which we speak well of, all right, 
a sharing, and that's the Greek word koinonia, a sharing in the blood of Christ is not the bread which we break, a koinonia, in the body of Christ. So this can be called, and it was often called in the early church, sort of the eulogy. It also can be called the Eucharist because eulogy is to speak well of someone. Eucharist is to thank someone. So Eucharist is to say thank you. And so that's why the Episcopalians refer to it as the Eucharist. It's saying thank you to God and to his son. This is the thank you. All right. This is also the blessing. In the name of Christ, we bless it. This is also the koinonia, which is the word translated as sharing in the blood. Now, what does the word koinonia mean? Well, the closest in English is communion. And if you hear the word communion, you, what you hear is union and common. And so communion is the many becoming one, common, united, all right? Communion. The many become one. And so here at this table... We have the eulogy, we have the Eucharist, we have the koinonia, which means communion, and we also have here the table. So all these words are perfectly fine to refer to the sacrament which our Lord commanded when he said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay? Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. All right, now, look. Now, remember how I said that we need to be intimate with each other, okay? And if I'm intimate with you, that means I carry you in my heart. Okay? You understand that. And I carry you in my heart, and I know what makes you sad. And I know it makes you sad for your pastor ever to say anything critical of anybody who says they're a Christian. But would you please understand that the Apostle Paul in this text is saying critical things about people who call themselves Christians. I can't be faithful to the word of God and just say, if anybody ever uses the name of Jesus, I'm with him. I can't do it. All right? And specifically here, I have to point something out that has caused one of the mothers of people in this church to have constant angry tension with her grown son and his family. Because the last time she was here, I made the same point I'm about to make now. I didn't know she's visiting this weekend. She actually is, and she's not here this morning. Because I made this point the last time she was here. But this is a necessary point, all right? You're postmodern, and... The only value you have, and by the way, value is a relative term, the only value you have is, can't we all get along? Because in polyglot America, that's, that's all we're left with. There's no more law of God. There's just, can't we all get along? But no, we can't, because it's appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment. I'm supposed to proclaim the judgment in such a way that we live today by faith. We can't live by faith without repentance. We can't repent if we don't know what to repent of. So I have to call you to repentance. Not just those who have never been saved, but those who are saved, because Luther said the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. One of the things you need to repent of is you need to repent of not being willing to say no to other Christians. 
There are real consequences to people believing lies. Real consequences. This is why the media so constantly tries to convince you of a whole bunch of demonic lies. All right? If the media has you for 370, 64 days a year, I'm going to take the leap year day. That's all I get. It's just a few minutes, one day a week. All right? So be patient with me as I make this point from God's word. This is not me. This is the word. Now, listen. This is a perfect verse for us to deal with Roman Catholicism. It's perfect because I've spent my life reading Orthodox Roman Catholics, not liberal ones. I, why would I waste my time living, reading liberal Roman Catholics? Liberal Roman Catholics want the New York Times to approve of them. You know? They're inconsequential. Serious Roman Catholics, I like. <laughs> because they are seriously wrong. And they will look at me and say, you are a heretic. I was on the phone with the guy that runs the, the, the fatherhood ministry of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, I won't name it. won't name the man. But we're friends. And I said to him, you know, I get so sick of the rapprochement efforts of evangelicals and Roman Catholics. It makes me sick. I said, why don't you have me on your radio show, your television show, and you and I can look at each other and I can say, you're a heretic. And he can look at me and say, you're a heretic. And then we can argue. And wouldn't that be wonderful? And we both laughed and said, yeah, it would be such a relief. I mean, it used to be that men knew that to fight one another was one of the most affectionate things you could do with a man because truth mattered. It used to be that argument wasn't a dirty word. But today, everything's so cloying, so relational, that truth has no place to be. <laughs> you know? <gasps> and I live in that pressure cooker, and I know what you think as I make a point against Roman Catholicism because it's uncomfortable, and I feel your pain. But nevertheless, look at this verse. It says, is not the wine of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. But that's not what it says. It says, is not the cup. Orthodox Roman Catholics will tell you that we are wrong because we don't believe that when the bell rings, you've been to Mass, you've been to Mass, I've been to Mass, you've been to Mass. Come on. Everybody should go to Mass. It's, it's eye-opening. All right. When the bell rings, what is in here turns into the blood of Christ, and what I hold here turns into the body of Christ. That is the dogma, the magisterium teaches. All right? That is Roman Catholicism. If you have ever been to an Orthodox Roman Catholic liturgy, say Tridentine, 
you know you may not take the Lord's Supper unless you agree that that, when the bell rings, turns into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. They will not let us go and take communion with them. We may not be at the table of unity with them. They are not koinonia with us. They divide us and they say no to us. I'm not talking about liberal Catholic churches. And the issue is we do not accept that this literally turns, as the bell rings, into the body and blood of Christ. And what they always say to us is, look, you Protestants, you're really big on Scripture. And then they say, eat it. It says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, it says, this is the blood of Christ, this is the body of Christ. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We believe, everybody believes who's a Christian, that this is the body and blood of Christ. The question isn't whether it's the body and blood of Christ. The question is whether it physically turns into the body and blood of Christ. And they say, yes. And doesn't the Bible say? Listen to it, Mr. Protestant preacher. Doesn't it say the blood of Christ and about the bread, the body of Christ? And I say, well, you know, when it comes to the bread, you have a point. It does say the bread. The body. The bread. The body. (laughs) But here's the problem. It doesn't say the wine. It says the cup. And so look, Mr. Roman Catholic priest, if you're going to throw the literal interpretation of Scripture in my face, then you explain to me why it is that you think it's what the cup contains that turns into the blood and not the cup itself. Because it says the cup. All through scripture it says the cup. And they say, well, that's synecdoche. I say, oh, you just discovered synecdoche. So like it's synecdoche in distinguishing between the cup and the wine, but it's not synecdoche distinguishing between the wine and the blood of Jesus. How does that work? Now listen to me. Here's how that works. If you have a huge percentage of those who claim the name of Christ in the world, and you teach them that this sacrament is absolutely cut off from anybody that denies that it's the literal body and blood of Christ, and that you have the power as a priest, only the priest, to turn it into the body and blood of Christ, and that it happens when a bell rings, Do you now know why all the reformers refer to the Roman Catholic Church as superstitious? And can you understand how tender souls would be kept in the Roman Catholic Church and would never allow a Protestant near them? You go down to Mexico, and guess what you see? On the doorposts, not the blood of Christ, but little cards that say to you, if you're Protestant, stay away from my house. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church has taught them that if you don't believe that this is literally changed into the body and blood of Christ, and notice I use the word this. I'm equivocating. This. What's this? Not the cup. But that's what the Bible says. All right. If I don't believe that it literally changes into the body and blood of Christ, 
then I may not have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If I don't have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I may not go to Mass. If I don't go to Mass, where am I in the Roman Catholic Church? It is absolutely necessary for you to become infused with the righteousness of Christ that you are faithful to the sacraments. And the most frequent sacrament is not baptism. It's Mass. And so you are perpetually cut off from the means of grace in the Roman Catholic Church if you don't believe that it literally turns into the body and blood of Christ physically. Now listen. Here at this church, we accept everyone who is a member of a Bible-believing church. We don't tell Lutherans they can't come to the Lord's Supper. We have serious differences with Lutherans. We don't tell Baptists. We have about half Baptists and half Presbyterians in this church. We don't tell Methodists they can't come. We don't tell United Church, Disciples of Christ, Christian Church even, we don't tell. Now I say even because Christian Church is really evangelical Roman Catholicism. <laughs> and how that works, talk to me afterwards. It's very interesting. Christian church is sacramentalist. That's why I say that. But I, I don't want to get off on that because that's not a tangent, but I won't get done. All right. But listen, I want you to understand. This verse is packed full of useful meaning for us. Do not go under the bondage of the Roman Catholic Church. Don't become superstitious. We do not need the bell to ring and these elements to be changed into the physical body and blood of Christ for us to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. All of us believe that Jesus Christ's body and blood, which we must eat and drink to have life, because he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you may have no part in me. All, right? All of us believe that we eat at this table the body and blood of Christ. The difference is whether the cup turns into the blood. And you say, well, they don't teach that. They teach the wine. And I say, yeah, but the Bible says is not the cup. Really important things hinge on words. And if it weren't true, why would there be so much effort in the academy to keep us from ever using the word man inclusively? <laughs> you know, you stand up in front of your English lit class, you know, and try to use the word man inclusively. I dare you to do it all through your dissertation. I dare you. And all of a sudden, words are very important, aren't they? But when I teach and preach this kind of thing, you think I'm being small and divisive and schismatic and insensitive and, and maybe East Coastian. You know, where, you know, the East Coast is kind of in your face. In the Midwest, we're sort of chilled out, you know, kind of like an Asian, you know. Listen, if you go back to the Middle Ages when the Reformation hit, all right, what you find is that the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences with phrases like, the minute the coin hits the box, a soul springs free in purgatory. Now, does that sound like superstition? 
Do you know where the money went? A good portion of the money went to pay for the art that we all idolatrously worship today, namely Michelangelo. Who could say anything negative about Michelangelo? The Sistine Chapel. It went to pay for the glorious cathedrals that we Protestants now want to build. It's like, people, simplicity. We don't need to scare people with superstition. We don't need bell ringing. We have here at this table the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. And everybody here knows he's speaking of what the cup contains, right? And then he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now listen, here's a loaf of bread, all right? And he says, is not the bread that we break. What do I do every time we have communion? This is what I do. I break it. All right? He says, is not the bread we break. Why does he say that? Well, because in, in, in the early church, they had a loaf of bread. And they broke it. Every individual took a piece and broke it. Because as they break the bread... What they're doing is they're participating in the death of Christ. And they are seeing in front of them a visual token of a spiritual reality, which is the body of Christ broken for you. Everybody's with me. You're all with me on that, right? But they're also seeing in front of them the unity of the body of Christ because the Apostle Paul in Scripture use bread and body interchangeably to refer to the body of Christ, which is the church. And so the body of Christ refers to this element of the sacrament. The body of Christ refers to you. And so when he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ, they used to come and they used to break the bread. Now you know why we change the way we do worship. We're tired of the disembodied brainishness of Protestant worship. Where you sit in the pew, you have this sterile plate pass with these sterile little crackers. You're looking at the nape of the neck of the person in front of you. Or you have your eyes closed and you're like playing intellectual spiritual tiddlywinks inside of your heart. Hoping you look pious to everybody around you, but nobody's looking at you. And Jody, Pastor Killingsworth, said, enough! What we need to do is we need to begin to have some organic unity that matches what we say is going on in the sacrament. If the the Bible says that we're one in Christ, if the Bible warns us not to be one in Christ, there should be some opportunity for us to walk forward, go back, say, excuse me, You know, look in the face of a man, hear him say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. There should be something that's physical about the Lord's Supper, right? And that's why we change the way we do worship. Now, 
if you look at the text, you'll see that it says, is not the bread. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And we also know that there is one cup, right? If we had our druthers, all of us would drink out of one cup. But we can't because we live in the post-bacterial world. And so we would drink with knowledge. And there are some of us that it would pose a threat to physical life. And so that's why we use the dipping of the bread into the blood of Christ. So that we don't all have our lips on the same cup. Now, what I'd like to do is have two lines, one for those of us that are willing to, to, to throw the dice, not superstitiously, of course, knowing that the, 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 that the lot belongs to the Lord, right? And one for those of us who have particular weaknesses physically. Now, listen. You're thinking, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, the whole point of Paul in speaking about this is to say to us, you're united with those that you have the Lord's Supper with. And we're going to get into that more because it goes on for a couple chapters. All right? Now, listen. What he says is, there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, shares in the altar. He says, look at the Old Testament, look at the ritual. Sometimes the ritual is called a riot of blood, all right? And not the sin offerings, they were completely consumed. But the thank offerings and the peace offerings were eaten after the sacrifice, the portions that weren't used. And he says, wasn't there unity there? And yes, there was unity there. And then he says... They were sharers in the altar. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And so he's working along with them and he's thinking, okay, right about now they're saying, oh, come on, the Apostle Paul, or better, more likely, come on, Paul. You know, an idol isn't anything. And he says, so am I saying an idol is something? And then he says, what? Beginning of 20, no. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And all of a sudden you think, where did demons come from? I thought we just established that idols were nothing. Right? And all of a sudden they're demons. And what you have to understand is there is no demilitarized zone in the life of a believer. There's none. The whole reason that the Corinthians were eating meat sacrificed to idols is that they wanted to deny that there needed to be any distinctions between them and unbelievers. And so they weren't going to go right in the temple and sacrifice to the pagan gods, but they were going to... You know, they were going to go as close as they could in such a way that they could have meat because men love meat. And it's not carno, carnivore or what did she say? That wife of mine. How did she say it? Carnivore. It's not carnivore. It's carnivore. <laughs> There's an E on the end. <laughs> and men love meat. 
and men don't like to divide from one another. And so here you had these smart, wise, knowledgeable Corinthians just cuddling right up to idols and saying, we all know they're idols, and idols are nothing. But behind the idols was the worship of demons. Now you take, right now, you take the thing in your life, okay, that you don't want to be divided over. Take feminism, okay? We all want to be feminists, right, everybody? Okay? Oh, you're all liars. All of us want to be feminists. Always, all of us want to prove to the world that we're in touch with our inner woman. Why do you think you have pierced ears? That's why I had a pierced ear. Still have one. <laughs> okay, all of you are righteous about feminism, right? How about sports, huh? <laughs> all of us want to cuddle up to the idol of sports. Can anybody deny it's an idol? Aren't we all breathing heavy for the NFL season to start? And you say, no, I'm not. Okay, fine, you're, you're not. You don't want to be a feminist, and you're not into the NFL. And so you must be righteous. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, you're just like me. Name it. What is it? Name it. Hunting. Okay. Hunting. Those new, those new scent suppressing. I mean, I hope D doesn't discover them because he'll maintain his superiority to the rest of us. Now, if you don't know about that, D, raise your hand. He'll tell you. All right. Okay, so what is it? Is it that you're Japanese and you don't want to say no to the burial of your Buddhist parents? And so you want to cuddle up to Buddhism to honor your parents because what's higher in Asian culture than honoring your parents? Come on, guys. You name to me what it is. And this is the Corinthians. They want to come right up next, sidle right up next to the place where they can make it look as if they can have both God and demons at the same time. And the Apostle Paul says, what? No, 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 no. In other words, it's right at the place where they will have to die. And that's the one thing that we don't want to do. None of you are willing to admit that you're wanting to be feminist. You're liars. I come and I listen to the way that you talk on campus and I know what I'm going to hear. You're going to use inclusive language everywhere and you're going to just fall all over yourself sacrificing to demons. Because the spirit that denies the authority and fatherhood of God as it's writ in creation is demonic. All right? It's a doctrine of demons. And you say, well, wait, shouldn't women be equal to men? I say, they always have been. <laughs> they both have the image of God. This is nothing new. And you say, well, then what are you talking about? And I say, it's obvious that you don't know your Bible. But, of course, we try not to know our Bibles at those places where we would have to die if we knew them. <laughs> you know? Listen, the Apostle Paul says this. 
he says, I say, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So there's no DMZ. Are you with me? There's no place to stand where you can equivocate between the right and the left, between God and demons. All right? Are you with me? Everybody with me? So what you should really do in your spiritual life is do everything you can to discover those places where you want to stand because you think you'll be able to blur the distinctions. Study those places really carefully and then try to make it really clear to everybody that you have taken up your cross and died because you serve a master who did it for you. And it would be perverse if we followed the Lord Jesus Christ and when he said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. We said, heck no. Now when I put it like that, it sounds good, right? I mean, you want to die for Christ, right? Right? Come on, tell me. You want to die for Christ. So I say, okay, where do you want to die for Christ? Do you want to not have an SUV? You say, well, no, but I could give up smoking. And I go, oh, please. The whole world is giving up smoking. It's the most disgusting habit. I sat in Starbucks a week ago and listened to a helpful profession man browbeat a mentally retarded woman about the fact that she has a couple of cigarettes a week. I mean, it's the one little petty morality that we can all agree on. And that's what you're going to give up for Jesus? <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Yesterday, there's a man here today who yesterday I said to him, you need to stop smoking. <laughs> that's not my point. My point is, what are you going to do, lose weight for Jesus? Oh, please. <laughs> you're going to lose weight for Jesus. There are three books that sell. Lincoln, Dogs, and Weight. <laughs> Every publisher knows this. And you're going to lose weight. Now, don't get me wrong. I constantly, constantly think about my weight. And I think it's a spiritual issue. And I always hear the scripture that says, whose gods are their bellies? What are you going to die to for Jesus? What does Jesus call you to die to? It's not what a petty morality of this world. If you find that the things you're dying to are the things that make you popular, it's like, please, <laughs> you know? How about taking the one thing and dying to the thing that will cause other people to say, damn you! Listen, let me illustrate this this way. All through the book of Corinthians, it condemns so-called knowledge, so-called wisdom. It says man's wisdom is his foolishness to God. Now, everybody's with me on this, right? We've been through those texts. We've learned them well. And so I have hit so hard the issue that we cannot think that the modern university in higher education is godly. 
that it's terribly dangerous, that it foments pride, and that God resists the proud. I've pointed out the pride at IU. I've pointed out the pride of education, the pride of intellect. I've harangued you about it, right? Everybody with me, right? Now listen, here's the interesting thing. So yesterday I spent time with some of our children, our children, and what I find is our children have no desire to learn, to read, to think, to argue, to debate, to grow in the life of the mind. Because what they've done is they've heard me warn against the life of the mind, and they've gone the whole way to the other side. I'm not going to have anything to do with the life of the mind. Because Pastor Bailey has said it's awful. Now, do you realize how easy that is to avoid dying? And so what they want to do is get an honest trade where you work with your hands for a living. And they don't want to have to read. They don't want to have to think. I'm just going to sweat. But the problem is, each one of these boys has a brain that just purrs. In other words, God's given them the gift of instructing and disciplining the people of God and reading all the dead people. And here they are wanting to avoid the place of temptation. (laughs) Isn't it devious how Satan works? What we need are people who apply themselves to the life of the mind for the kingdom of God. And so who has more faith? The man that's going to work as a plumber who has a brain that purrs or Brandon who has a brain that kind of chugs along. I've been waiting for two years to do that one. I got it in there nicely, says my elder. But he's at the center of the pressure because there's no department at the university that is as ideologically corrupt as English literature. I don't say that because he said that to me. I say that because professors of English literature have said that to me. It's completely unhinged from any objective standard. It's whatever you read in the text, right? Postmodernism, redaction, you know, not redaction, actually. What's it called? Uh, huh? That's uh, not form. It's the Frenchman. Yeah. Okay, listen, I'm done. Here's what you take away. Actually, I have one other thing to say. Sorry. Here's what you take away. You find the place where you don't want to have to die. And that's where you focus. They didn't want to have to die over making a distinction over food sacrifice idols. So Paul made the distinction real clear. You are partaking of the body and blood of Christ, and you are partaking of sacrifices to demons. There's no DMZ. Where are you going to stand? Okay, listen. Find the place where you don't want to die. Focus your attention there, okay? Right there, the place where your conscience is at fever pitch. It's completely different from me. Yours isn't mine. You understand. And I won't judge you with mine when I'm talking to you. But I have a good nose for you. And Paul's got the number of the Corinthians, doesn't he? He knows them well. Now, as we end, here's my final point. 
he says this. In verse 20, the second half, did you notice I didn't comment on it? The second half says, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons, all right? And then verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Okay? So the Apostle Paul, three times in this text, in the first verse, he says, you judge what I say. In verse 20, he says, I don't want you to become sharers in demons. Verse 22, he says, we are not stronger than he, are we? <laughs> if, if you've been listening to me, you know what I'm going to say to you, right? All three of these places are places where the Apostle Paul uses his love for them and their love for him to move them along. You can't be a Christian and not be intimate with the other believers here. I tell you, love covers a multitude of my sins. Right before this service, you know what I did? I sent an email to a famous Christian man. It had been on my conscience. And I said to him, you would never do, and I named a sin. And I said, you are holy. You are godly. You would never do this. I'm sorry that I have spoken ill of you many times. And then I copied a whole bunch of people. All the people that had heard me speak ill of that man. Now, you can either be scandalized by that, or you can say, yeah, that's one of Tim's sins. And then, I know what your sins are. You know what mine are. You forgive me mine. That man will forgive me his. I've actually asked him to forgive me for it before, but I'm again today struck with my sinfulness against him. And again today, I want to encourage him that I have seen godliness in him in this area, and I want him to be encouraged that God has used him to rebuke me. You, you understand? This is the way we live together as Christians. It's not the way you live as, as Christians. It's the way I live. It's the way the elders, the older women of the church, we live together this way. And in this way, we are brought to the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't stop until we die. Okay? And so, don't be scandalized by the intimacy of the preaching here. Don't be scandalized that somebody looks at you and says, are you crazy? Have you thought that through? You know, just look at him and say, well, I didn't think I was crazy, but you know, God sends me other Christians so that they can tell me I'm crazy. Open up your mind to me. Be objective. Don't be a little man. And I'm not referring to stature. <laughs> I'm referring, don't be one of these insecure people that can't ever have anybody poke you, you know. The Apostle Paul is fever pitch. And he asks rhetorical questions. What do you think? You know, well, judge for yourself, you know. Oh, I don't want you to give yourself to it. And there's these little things through the text that indicate nothing is pulpiteering. Nothing is objective. Everything is subjective with the Apostle Paul. Everything is him trading on his affection and their affection for him. Okay? Does that make sense to you? I just love it, the way that keeps showing up in the text. Makes you love Paul, doesn't it? Makes me want to meet him. Right? Okay. Now we have the Lord's Supper. And as the elders come, can I remind you what I said earlier? We invite and embrace everyone who is a part of a Bible-believing church. 
In other words, we do want you to be a part of some church and under the authority of its leadership. They may call them deacons, they may call them pastors, they may call them elders, they may call them rectors. The polity, how they govern themselves, the names of their officers, that's, that's not consequential. You're, you guys are fine. You're fine. Have a seat. You're fine. It's just an elder sitting next to you. And he's big. But his name is Jeff. He's a teddy bear. This guy, though, oh, man. So we invite everybody to come to the table. Um, if you're under discipline of the officers of your church, we honor that discipline. Don't come until you've made it right with them. But if you're Lutheran, Methodist, whatever you are, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and if you desire to receive from this cup and this bread the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, welcome. Okay? All right. Let me read the words of institution found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul, <laughs> notice 1 Corinthians 11, we're just at 10. And so we're going to get to this soon. All right. So we're going to be on the Lord's Supper for a while. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken, having given thanks, he said, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, Come on, what does it say? This wine? No, it says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. What, the cup? No. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. And so all of us together, men, women, children, grandparents, all of us together are one. Finally, think of what the postmodern wants more than anything else. He wants all distinctions gone. The only way to have distinctions gone is in Christ. And so wherever you go in the world, you're one with me and I'm one with you. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female at this table.